If you would, go ahead and take your Bibles, and we're going to look at a couple of passages leading into our primary text. One you probably don't need to look into, although you may need to for the purpose of seeing the two following verses. So first of all, John 3, 16 through 18. As we've already read and acknowledged through the lighting of the candle, today's theme with Advent is that of love. And you really cannot talk about Christmas and the incarnation and the purpose of Christ and then the subsequent expression of the church in this world without talking about love. It is such a a word that is often overused, misused, um, confused, even, and maybe even especially this time of year because so much sentimentality is associated with it. And that's not to decry that there are times that we can certainly just be sentimental and enjoy that, enjoy a good, um, you know, Christmas movie, not Hallmark, but anything else that has substance to it, like Christmas Story, for instance, uh, great stories and it's not. But the, the idea is that love just shows up so often, just like we talked about with joy. I don't know if there's another theme that comes through on a secular level more than love. And you just see it in so many different ways. In John three sixteen through 18, this popular passage, at least verse 16, here's what it says. For God so loved the world, and that's not about extreme, it's about manner, okay? It's about the manner in which he did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, you got to hang on because it sounds really nice that he didn't come to condemn the world. But there's a problem with the world already. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So even in a secular society, as we move into Christmas time, you, you will at least sometimes see a nod to the reason for the season, and Christ remaining in, a, in this inoffensive manger. But we know there's really nothing inoffensive about both the nature of how he came, the fact that he came at all, okay, but especially where this goes. Because as C.S. Lewis himself said that you do not have the convenience of calling, and this is a paraphrase, but you don't have the convenience of just calling him a good teacher. If you really listen to the claims that he made, if you really listen to the record of what he actually said, and actually even the 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 obedience to his commands of his followers, you have to call him liar, lunatic, or Lord. You don't get to call him merely a good teacher. Now, if you would flip over to Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. So God's manner of love for the world, as mentioned in John three sixteen, is that Christ came. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Okay? Now, Again, we know that Christ himself is part of the Trinity. And when I say part of the Trinity, simply meaning he is all of God. Okay? We do not believe that God merely changed form as this error of what would be historically called modalism, which is basically, think of, think of water, for instance, where you have different expressions. You have liquid, steam, and solid, right? Ice. So the idea there is that we, that is not how we are to treat Christ, okay? We're not to think of him in the modes of relationships. So for instance, that to my parents, I'm a son, to my wife, I'm a husband, to my kids, I'm a dad. It's not just this 
this relational model or mode either. There is a mystery to it. We have three distinct persons, all of God, that make up the single Godhead. And yet somehow we still do not call ourselves polytheists. We are monotheistic. We believe in one God. It is a great mystery. And yet we acknowledge the fact that as those who do not think as God does, that his thoughts are far beyond ours, that we understand this, that when Christ came and took on flesh, that he was fully God and then became fully man. It was not a 50-50 split, 60-40, 100-100. We needed his full humanity. We needed his full divinity. We needed both. In fact, it is there that you will often find the, the difference between ourselves and many of the false religions that may come knocking on your door at any given time. Now, Philippians 2, 3 through 11 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So you have a couple of words at work here. You have morphe, which is the form, and you have iso, which you, science types might hear to be isosceles, or you math haters, uh, you know, isosceles tri uh, triangles, or um, isometric behaviors, anything like that has to do with equality. And really what he's saying here is he took on the form of man, but he maintained all the equal natures when it came to God himself as well as man. So basically we're talking about him taking on everything related to manhood while never abdicating one ounce of his nature as God. What he did give up was position and privilege, a seat. He did not give up any of his nature. There was not an emptying of himself, so to speak. He only radically inconvenienced himself in every way. He goes on, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and he emptied himself of, again, position and privilege, not his nature. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So somewhere in this phrase and in this statement already in Philippians, you have basically the incarnation. He came, he was God, he is God, and he took on flesh. Okay, via a womb. So much is going on here. But he stayed committed to it because he goes, carries it all the way through to the purpose of his birth, which was ultimately a death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, so here you have the ascension and his rightful place of authority, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and he gives a nod to the Philippian church here of this Greco three-dimensional perspective of in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. He's saying that all of those, whether, and of course we know heaven not necessarily to be up, um, that's north. I'm just kidding. That's not how that works. But um, we, we know that it is heaven on earth and under the earth that basically all of humanity that ever has been, ever will be, and ever has already gone on have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. At that point, it's no longer a choice. It's an acknowledgement of truth and fact. Of course, for us evangelistically, we want people to hear this truth and acknowledge this truth here because otherwise they'll be left with this confession out of compulsion. 
under the earth, so to speak, or in the grave, or even worse, as you have this perspective, Hades, as in hell. Every knee should bow. And then he says, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have that God loved the world in such a way that Christ came. He sent Christ. And then Christ, when he did come, according to Philippians 2, came just like this. But then Paul does this marriage of understanding that when Christ came, he modeled something for us in the process. So please understand, Christ did not come merely for us to be more loving people. He did not come as a mere example as many who are more radically uh, liberal in their perspectives of of basically uh, the gospel is basically universalism that everyone is essentially going to be okay. Christ essentially came just to teach us how to be sacrificial and how we live towards humanity. That is a complete cheapening. In fact, that completely disregards the purpose of of the cross altogether. He came to save men already condemned in their sin. And the way that he came, this condescending way of strapping on flesh, shows much about what it should look like for us as a church for the redeemed. Because again, Paul's writing to the Philippian church, believers gathered together for a purpose, the glory of God, putting this on display. And Paul is starting to shape this and help understand help them understand that there is a way in which they are to live in the world together. And it's modeled on what Christ did in coming for his purpose. So while we are proclaiming the gospel of the purpose of Christ's coming, strapping on flesh, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, there is a way in which we are to live that helps put that even better on display and makes our words when we speak the gospel even more powerful. And that is this idea that Paul introduces in Philippians 2, and we're going to talk about more distinctly in 1 Corinthians 13, is this deferment of treating others' interests as greater than our own. Treating others as more importantly than we would even treat ourselves. It's so simple. And yet you really don't have to go far back into your memories to see, especially in the Western landscape, especially in the church, especially in our political landscape, just how much evangelicals struggle with the simple concept of love. Love. 1 Corinthians 13. If you would turn over there. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love? I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. In commenting on this passage, John Calvin says this. He says, the object, however, mainly in view is to show how necessary it is for preserving unity in the church, it being love. I have also no doubt that he designed indirectly to reprove the Corinthians by setting forth them a contrast in which they might recognize by way of contraries their own vices. And that's true because the situation going on here at 1 Corinthians is you have this pattern in Corinthians that, that Paul often uses. Now, he didn't write it in chapters. That, those are things that, that, that we have done to make it easier for us to make references. But there is a way to look at this where there is kind of this ABA pattern that you will often see in Paul's lengthier writings. For instance, we see it back in chapter 11. If you remember chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, we, it should at least ring a bell because almost every time that we receive communion, we mention this passage. Preached on it, I don't know, first few weeks of being here. Because it had to do so much with the idea of they were adopting and adapting secular practices as well as just being flat out selfish in how they practice the Lord's table together. So as, as Paul would then address their selfishness and the fact that they wanted to basically, they, they were actually creating all these disparities between the, the wealthy and the poor. I don't know if that really drew itself along ethnic lines so much. That's not really mentioned as much, but it was causing division. Certainly earlier in the book then, you see how they then treated sin. And here's what's interesting. It took a lot of years for me to really fully understand when the church at Corinth is being addressed for her, for her odd acceptance of particular sexual sins. To really understand what was Paul saying when he said, this is of no credit to you and how you're treating this. But then when you look at the bigger picture, here's what it is. They were priding themselves in the acceptance of people who were practicing certain things that were actually not even named among the Gentiles or pagans, so to speak. They, were, they weren't rejoicing necessarily in the sin as much as their acceptance of it. And Paul in his rebuke says, no, if someone is living this way and unrepentant, you actually have to remove them from your fellowship, not to judge them, but to say, look, if you're not repentant, it actually could be that you're not actually a true Christian. And that should be actually a very sorrowful, it's called church discipline. It should be a very sorrowful event that happens in the life of a church. It definitely should happen more often than we ever hear of it happening. But in a church that faithfully practices these things in a loving way, it shouldn't be something that's all that common. Simply because we love each other the right way. Now here's what, here's what this really, when you look at the big picture of 1 Corinthians. They had a skewed, messed up view of love that I actually find resonating so much in the West, but also in the Western church. If you love me, then you will tolerate the choices that I'm making in this particular way, living this, making these particular choices. Because love basically means you just accept me as I am. 
But see, here's the thing, is that they weren't loving from the perspective of it was actually convenient for them to accept others. They never had to stand in the way of someone else's sin in light of their own relationships with the Lord. And Paul called them on it. And then after he unpacks that, he does. He makes his way through chapter 11 and dealing with how selfish they are being in religious practices like the Lord's table. And then again here with the idea of love, you will see in chapter 12, he talks about the use of spiritual gifts. And there's envy going on. The people are jealous of one another in these more public gifts. Okay, so basically they would, they would look at Gordon and go, why, why don't I have that gift? Why, why can't I sing like that? Or, or wear a mustache like Gordon does because it's a really great mustache. You know, they're jealous of these spiritual gifts that people have and they want those. But then Paul is saying, no, we're all, we all make up the body. Body is made up of parts and we're all individually parts of it for the glory of God and for the gospel to go forth in this world. As he's encouraging this, he, is, he then gives the real core, the real meat of this to say, look, here's your problem. And it's the same problem you had all the way back earlier when I was dealing with sin of tolerance. Is that you love wrongly. You don't understand biblical love. Or you don't understand God's love for you. You're not thinking of others. You're not thinking of others first. You're thinking envious thoughts. You are thinking thoughts of jealousy. It's not even love. So how can the world even understand? It doesn't matter. If you long for these gifts, what if God gave you the gift of prophecy? And regardless, today's sermon is not about what does prophecy mean and whether or not there is cessationism, meaning will they all cease? What does tongues mean here? Will it all cease? The fact is, he says that everything is going to go away at some point Ultimately, what we see is all of it goes away. The gifts as well as faith and hope when Christ comes. You know what's left? Love. You don't need faith when Christ shows up. You see him. You don't need hope. Hope is realized now. But you will absolutely live for eternity in love. And he has called us to emulate this now. So he's saying, even if you have this great gift of prophecy, even if you're able to speak with the tongues of the angels, and whether that is by some interpreting it as like speaking in tongues or more, I think that it is in the articulation, whether it's known languages or whatever, it's the articulation. It's basically being able to speak in such a way to help people understand. One way or another, regardless of the expression, that's what it's for, for the glory of God and for the clarity of the gospel. Basically, it means that someone's standing in front of others speaking and there's a whole lot of people not doing that and they're jealous of that he says even if you have that gift but if you don't have love ding 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 and it's not even that pretty it's a clanging symbol it is useless let's say you have knowledge you are able to actually discern and understand all the nuances of the Pentateuch and the Torah and the prophets and you totally get where all the realizations are of every prophet, major and minor, and how it finds itself fulfilled in the New Testament and you've got every verse memorized and you can make, connect every single dot. You don't have love? Useless. You can be the smartest people in the room biblically. You can be the most gifted, talented person in the room biblically. And if you do not have love and show it in love, it is completely and utterly useless for the reasons and ways that God would even give those things to people so that he is glorified and his people are built up. 
what he's saying. And then in chapter 14, he actually comes back around to the gifts. So you have again the A, B, A. You have gifts in, which is A. He speaks about them in, in 12. 13 is the B part where he talks about the motivation and the heart behind it. But then he goes back to those gifts in 14, which is again going back to A, which is talking about. And that's oftentimes Paul will do this for repetition, for clarity. But also when he revisits the subject after talking about the heart issue. So he introduces it, 12 heart issue 13, then when he comes back to it in 14, they're hearing it a little differently. It means something a little bit that's different than what they understood at the first place. So in all of this, I think that as we look at this chapter, as we walk through it, and we're just really going to kind of, it, it's almost like driving by good Christmas lights. We're just going to kind of notice decent pace I think there's three things that are at play in this, and, and we've mentioned them in part, but I'm going to give them distinct words. The first one is the vitality of love, which is we're going to speak about how vital love is to the unity of the church, to our mission. The practicality of love in verses four through seven, where you have basically that, that love has a very practical outworking, and there's very specific things that we should not do and that we should do. There's very specific things that we should understand that love is not and absolutely must embrace things that love absolutely is. And then lastly, it's going to be on the eternality. And I've already hinted at it, that everything else goes away. The gifts, faith, hope, but not love. We're going to talk about that because once that settles in a little bit, I think that we start to realize that you don't get to press pause on being loving just for the sake of being truthful. You don't get to, I don't get to be truthful and accurate while being a jerk and I get a pass because we're just not there yet. Well, at least I was right. I mean, do I need to take a poll of the men in the room? At what year of marriage did you realize you could be right in a wrong way? Are we talking years? Are we talking how many hours or days after the honeymoon? Did you even make it out of the honeymoon before you realized this could happen? To be right in a wrong way? I mean, that may be a little colloquial or a little, you know, kind of a, an anecdote, but that's a real anecdote for any of us that, that have been married for any length of time whatsoever. The vitality of love, verses 1 through 3. He says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... He's able to pull both together so it makes sense, but I don't have love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Beautiful speech and clarity without love is just noise. The second thing he says, what if I have knowledge? I'm able to understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge and I have all faith so that as to remove mountain, but, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. Perfect knowledge and understanding without love is, it's vacuous. It's, it has, it, there's nothing to it. There's no gravity to it at all. You know, people, you, you hear the old adage, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You know, it sounds, but there's actually some truth to it. If you don't speak truth in love, but I don't know if it's just humanity or maybe it's us in the West. I don't know what it is actually, but we still, and, and I'm a truth guy. I mean, let's, I'm pretty black and white on a lot of things. I've learned to nuance a little bit more along the way. That was a whole lot about that thing I mentioned about being right in the wrong way. And so as we, but as we've gone along in life, I've started to realize there, there are other perspectives to listen to that just 
being right by itself is not the goal. Basically winning, winning the argument is not the goal. How many times do we, do we basically see? How many Facebook posts do you, and really comment sections, do you have to see where you think you dropped the mic, you think you won, but you lost the ability to actually speak into any, anything into the lives of those who have a different perspective than you really from now on just because you won this one argument? Now you've lost all ability to be able to share because of the way you won. That doesn't mean be false. But it is absolutely, completely, diametrically opposed to the gospel in the lives of believers for us to think that we have to fight in the way that the world fights in order to be right. They just won't pay attention otherwise. There's a Texas phrase. The Greek actually is bull. That is wrong. No way. That is not how this goes. He has given us a means and an end. He's given us methods, and it's love. This one really gets me. He says, I could give away all that I have. I could deliver up my body to be burned. If I do not have love, it's worthless. I mean, that's a gut punch. That that means that literally there have been those who have given their lives for purposes and for things. But when, and I'm not talking about necessarily, you know, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not getting into people who've died in battle and for the larger scheme. I'm talking about believers who, because that's who Paul's talking to, believers who think that they have really laid it all on the line. But if they have done so without love, it's worthless. I have seen this these last many months. Now, it's not been in the point of death, and I think Paul's going all the way there. But I have seen this in the lives of so many pastors who think they are being persecuted And they've never met one of my friends in Vietnam. Don't give me that. Don't you dare act like that you are a martyr because you are being asked to be inconvenienced for a little bit about something as if you are being radically attacked on some level. Don't you act like you've given up everything because I've seen how they do it. I see how they go about it. They're defending some other thing besides the gospel and they're certainly not talking about it in love. I've seen this from pastor friends of mine and I've seen this from many others who have much bigger voices, much bigger platforms than I will ever have and I don't even want to have. But they have forsaken that there is truth in love. Now it's not just some esoteric statement, there's actually specifics. And that's where he goes next, verses four through seven, the practicality of love. And these first two things are really defining about love. I think this is significant. He says this, love is. Love is, and he just marks it by patient and kind, right off the bat. Verse 4, without any other context, without any other statement or any other kind of set of of words that give you an idea of, you know, these are like, for instance, the next ones are really in response to how we have our own darkness, our own flesh, our own sin in us, and we have a tendency. We have sinful tendencies. There's another set that he talks about in the uh, things we should not do, the ways we should not think about love that are basically in response to what others do to us, responding to others' darkness and sin and flesh. And then he concludes the section in talking about really what we do in response to 
really the fact is, is that there is a difficult providence in this life. Life itself is hard, but also we will face times where God in his providence just allows us to go through difficulties and we have to respond in love still. But that's not where these first two, these first two don't land in any particular set of words or other context. It's as if simply enough, they're just kind of overarching and saying, you know, if you get this much, you'll, you'll be on the way of understanding the nature of love. It is patient and it is kind. Patient is just long-suffering. It is enduring. Kind is being benevolent and actually useful. And that's so contrary because everything that he just mentioned about you could have all these gifts, but if not love, then it's this, it's this, it's this. They all basically deal with in the absence of love, it is useless altogether or it's wasted. He says that love ultimately is useful. Love is something that requires us to be long-suffering and patient. Do you not see this Mark Christ? Did he not have to show long-suffering with his disciples? Even after the resurrection and just prior to the ascension, nope, not yet. This is, I'm not setting up the kingdom yet. I've been teaching you for 40 days. You went through the best seminary you possibly could have. Apostles, you've gone with me. And the reason we know that is because we have the rest of the New Testament. We can actually read the school that they were in with Christ. And as we hear this, and right before he ascends, he says, no, I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be my witnesses, okay, until I return again. Long-suffering, patient, kind. But what do you know about his kindness? You know, people love to say, well, he was kind with the woman at the well. He was absolutely kind with the woman at the well. And he still turned to her and commanded repentance but not in a mean way. I mean, is there any place in Scripture you actually could say Christ was a jerk? Well, he turned over tables once. And depending on your view of the Gospels and how they parallel one another, maybe it was twice. I think it was once, just two different perspectives. But even if it was twice, that doesn't necessarily turn into his MO, his modus operandi. Jesus doesn't live his entire life turning over tables every time he gets upset at something. He was upset at something in particular because they were profaning the very purpose of the gathering of Gentiles and Jews in the outer courts, that it needed to be a place of prayer, of submission to God, and they were turning it into a marketplace. Which shows me, you can actually be ticked off in a way, it's not being a jerk. Now, they may have felt that way, but Christ was consistent. His followers were consistent. In fact, they never understood, I shouldn't say never, they rarely understood his kindness. It's patient. He is kind. These are overarching descriptors that have to carry us through what's left. So let's talk about love's response to our flesh. What we do basically, even when someone doesn't do something to us, just the fact that there are other people, we have issues. We have our own fallenness, our own darkness that we have to grapple with when it comes to love. And this is where he goes. So he says, love does not envy or boast. I mean, right out of the gate, there's nothing else going on, even if it's just spiritual gifts, even if the people are using their spiritual gifts with love and they're the most humble people you possibly could imagine, they clearly have this gift. You are glad that they are in your midst and yet somehow we can still sit there and go, I'm still jealous. I'm, I'm upset about this. I'm envious. I wish I had that. We can just make it about us. It's just kind of this tendency that we have, 
even as redeemed people, we have this nagging dead flesh that's just kind of sticking around. We have to deal with it. Because envy in the description is basically this, it's a warmth of feeling for or a warmth of feeling against. And here's what this means basically. Envy could basically mean I have this warm, growing feeling for something that I want. Or it could be against someone that has something that I want. It could be impersonal or it could be very personal. But it's still envy. That is not love. There is nothing loving about envy of something or against someone. Nothing. And we have to deal with that. That's not loving. It says it doesn't boast, which basically is just to put self on display. In that, what we do is we try to carve out for ourselves some kind of pathway for us to be propped up. We're jealous or envious of other people getting more of the limelight or more of the attention. And I mean, look, everybody knows that somehow grandparents forget what it was like to be parents. They, they just don't know. They've, they have forgotten. We'll, we'll, we'll go through that as well at some point. These are perfect children who do not have inherent sin. They're wonderful. I don't know what you see all the time, son or daughter, but these kids are fantastic. Take them back. <laughs> Keep them around long enough and you'll be reminded of inherent sin of a toddler. You will, because as soon as they can articulate something, it will be mine. It'll be mine. That's what they'll say. You know, for our kids, it, was, it, was, it really was, for the most part, it was daddy. But then it was mine. Second word. And they try to carve out for themselves, if you're giving attention somewhere else, especially if you then end up having multiple kids in the house, okay, then you, and we did this personally because it's like having multiple dogs. At some point that energy gets absorbed amongst themselves and you just kind of let them be, be to themselves. You don't have to do as much parenting. That's not at all why we did this um, and had five kids. God blessed us tremendously. But you actually do see these ways that when something good is going on and you're just simply saying, even if you're just giving credit to a kid for having done well, you'll hear another kid over here say, but what about, it's a small thing. I know it seems innocent, but this thing grows up and it, and it comes out of adults in the church up against the world. This really gets twisted when we start to be envious of the world. So love doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. These are things it doesn't do, but it also is not something. It is not arrogant, he goes on, and it's not rude. Arrogant simply meaning it's not inflated or puffed up. It's not rude, it doesn't act unbecomingly. Now I know that's a real generic term or phrase and I wish there was more specifics to what it means to be rude. But the fact is, we kind of all know in our gut what rude looks like. When it's not just being facetious and you're just kind of making a joke and, or about something else out there, but when you're actually being sarcastic and trying to cause injury to someone, you know what it is to be rude. Love for the Christian should never be arrogant. It should never puff itself up and it should never be rude, ever. I don't care if you have an anonymous account in social media, God knows. And if you don't think that ends up coming through because you're not, you're not filtered by anyone actually knowing who you are, I promise you guys that comes through in how you interact with human people at church. 
They may not know that's your account. They may not know that's you that's doing this or doing that. But you don't get to live unfiltered online thinking that somehow you can flip that switch in front of others and just all of a sudden be not rude and not arrogant. This is humble. He goes on and says, but love, so he says, love does not do this. It is not this. Then he goes back to does not. Here's what he says. He kind of sums it up with this, this section of how we respond to things that are not necessarily sinful. It's just stuff in us we've got to deal with in our lack of love. He says, and he sums it up in this way. He says, it doesn't insist on its own way. It doesn't insist on its own way. That's pretty much what he says in summary of this. He says, or this section. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now we're just going to stop there because that actually heads into the next section. To say it does not insist on its own way, basically that phrase means it doesn't worship or plot self. It's basically a very intentional way of saying, I'm going to basically make a platform for myself. Now I know that sounds very big and organized and maybe you think, I don't do that. But you really have to look at all these other descriptors to say, have you ever been rude? Have you ever been arrogant? Every single one of those are ways that you have plotted a path to make yourself something. We've all done this. It may have been small. It may not be public. But we have all done this with others. Christian love in the church, as long as any of us are marked by these things, it affects the whole of who we are to the Milford community, to one another. Our world increasingly does not understand biblical love because the local church in the West especially does not know what it means to actually be loving just to one another, much less the world. Eventually, this insist on its own way means that that person stands alone on its own authority. See, what we have to remember about Corinthians, and I'm sorry this sounds really, um, I'm not attacking you. I'm attacking this idea of these things are serious. This is a chapter that's most often printed on the backs of, of orders of service for a wedding. Paul wrote this as a rebuke. That they're not living the way they're supposed to be living. Now, but he still describes what love should be. So it's okay if you had it on your order at the wedding. But I'm just saying we have to understand that the nature of this initially, originally, is rebuke. It's reproof. It's correction. But it's still descriptive of what it means to live faithfully, locally, for us to love one another. And that's first and foremost. To love one another well and rightly. And then we'll know how to love the world as we should, as we ought. But there is this response, love responds to others' flesh. Now, we respond to our own flesh just by looking at things that we want or need or we basically don't like that we're not having the better things. No one else, it's not about anyone having done anything wrong to us. But that is real though, right? Some people do wrong to us. Other people have sinned against us along the way. He still says love doesn't stop there. So he says it's not irritable. The second half of verse five, he says it's not irritable or resentful. Those words by themselves mean that you're reacting to something that was an irritation or could cause resentment. He says that love, and this love, by the way, for those of you who have been around church long enough to know that there's different types of love, all of this is always agape. 
every time. So it's God's defined love. It's how God sees it, what God wants for his people. It's not irritable, which basically just simply means easily provoked. We could talk marriages, we could talk politics, we could talk any number of things. We could talk vaccines, we could talk mask mandates, we could tease out so many different things that as soon as you hear it, it is what they call now trigger words. You are triggered. It annoys you, it irritates you right then. Why? Why? Even if someone else sins against you, I'm not saying that we blow it off and don't deal with it. I'm saying that no matter what's happened to us, none of us are off the hook to be unloving. I don't think I said that right. None of us are off the hook to, we still have to be loving. I'll put it that way. We are still called to be loving in our response. But sometimes we have to see the negative side, which is we are not to be easily irritated. It should be hard for someone to provoke us. That's not what I've seen in the last couple of years in the Western church, evangelical church. And I don't care what side of the aisle or whatever, however you want to put it, or in a lot of pandemic, there, the, the provocation has been so easy. I think it's actually a good thing what we've seen in the last couple of years. I think it is exposing realities that when everything else is pretty smooth and pretty easy, guess what guys, those things are there. This is literally turning up the heat and the sediments have risen to the top and there's a whole lot in the church that we need to be dealing with. I've not been here, so I don't know all those issues. I hear stories, both good and not so good. I hear different things along the way. This is not me being prophetic about Milford Bible as much as just simply saying this is in the Bible and therefore, if, especially if we're going to keep it in our name, then we need to make sure that this is something that is just as profoundly central to us as any other doctrine that sits in our statement of faith. We are to be, Milford Bible should be known as the people that are the most, and I don't mean tolerant as far as tolerant of sin, but I mean we can endure people doing us wrong. It is not easy to get us in a fight. Our first thought is not to pick up, take up arms and fight like the world would against other things. And whether that's metaphorical or actual. I had a friend this week that, that was, uh, uh, he was comparing, um, you know, who would you rather be in a foxhole with? He said, would you rather it be John Wayne or, and it was a particular guy who I know to be conservative, but he's also pretty balanced in his views. And so he offends oftentimes uh, further, further right-leaning uh, conservative political people. And uh, the interesting thing was is that, uh, you know, everybody was, the, 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 he did a poll. And so the poll was something like, I don't know, 88 to 90-something percent uh, for John Wayne. And I love John Wayne movies. I really do. But the funny thing was, never served in the military. This is not against John Wayne, by the way. I'm just saying the perspective is interesting evangelical pastor, pastors a church of about 1,200, a friend. And his point is clear. He's wanting that to be the poll. And, and that's the way the poll ends up winning out is, oh, I want John Wayne because I know he doesn't like this other guy. But the other guy actually is a decorated veteran. John Wayne only played war guys, military guys, veterans on the screen. Now, he doesn't have a purple heart, but he has a bronze star. 
I mean, our perspectives are so messed up and skewed when it comes to how do we react to people that irritate us. We, we don't even get it right, just data, because we're so quickly, and that's from a pastor who preaches. I know he, he's an expositor, he preaches faithfully, but guys, this is who we have seen ourselves now to be. I don't think it's who we've become. I think it's simply we are being exposed for who we are, and the world is seeing it. Love in responding to irritations from the world and even from other believers is not easily provoked. It's not resentful. It doesn't count it against someone and keep counting it against that someone. Now, he doesn't go on and talk about necessarily forgiveness right here, but he says, we are not people that hold grudges. You know why? Because people that understand Christian love understand what we've walked through with John 3, 16 and Philippians 2. They realized that they were the ones condemned, that we were not okay before we became believers. We were already dead in our sins and trespasses. If we are going to hold to what the scriptures say, we were of our father, Satan. We were, although maybe not practicing, we were essentially Satanists before Jesus Christ redeemed us from the pit and brought us into be adopted sons and daughters. We've been rescued. Christians who remember their rescue on a regular basis tend to not hold grudges. Our problem is we forget. And he sums up this section by saying it does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't cheer when others even morally fail. I mean, let Okay, let's go ahead and get real personal. Let's get real regional. Personally in this world, I don't, I'm just being honest with you, I don't care for pretty much much of what the Cuomos have almost ever said or what they represent. It is sinful for the Christian to cheer when sexual immorality or infidelity or abuse are exposed and they go down. No matter how much you disagree with someone, it is not okay as a Christian to cheer the moral failure and fall of someone else. That is right here. That is not my perspective. That is right here. And that's not even my tendency. Because guess what? First of all, it's ungodly. But second of all, I mean, are moral failings really along party lines? <laughs> they are so not. Go to any of your favorite news outlets and you will find abusers, misogynists, others who absolutely revile women by their actions clearly. But, but if they're on our team, we will explain that away. Well, I think let's wait till, you know, the jury's not out yet. Oh, they don't even have to finish the sentence if it's somebody we're against. And we want them put away for a We don't want to hear the jury. Don't even call a jury, clearly. Guys, this is the reality. Now, I don't know if this offends you, but first of all, you shouldn't be easily offended, so I can show you. But, um, but the fact is, is that this is the reality of what we deal with. If you don't think so, fine. Go home, sit on Facebook for about three minutes. Go to Twitter. But just check your heart. That's my concern. Christ came and it was a 
completely condescending love where he gave up all the privilege and position of being God, didn't give up being God, strapped on skin so that we could know him in salvation. But while he has left us here, he has said, your mode of operation is love. And this gets real personal, real fast. We should not rejoice in wrongdoing, the moral failures of others. Even if everything else is just fine, guys, maybe that's, the, maybe that's the litmus test. Maybe that is the final test that makes us go, okay, maybe I do need to deal with some things. Because I have kind of celebrated when so-and-so fell. Guys, I'm not saying you're going to go to hell for this, but I am saying it is sin. And it's that for which Christ died, just as he died for the moral failure that these people are eviscerated somewhat rightly for. It still cost Christ his blood and life. And you would not be in heaven if he had not died, even for your celebration of someone else's moral failings, any more than the immorality that they have just expressed. We need Christ. And our love is far from perfect. And then he goes out with with this, just, it's like sharp bullet points. I I really honestly did have hopes of of it being so much shorter today, guys, but it's, this is just so rich and good and it's, it's fine. And because the nature of it means you can't even hold me preaching 10 minutes longer than I meant to today. But, and that doesn't mean I'm going 10 more minutes. Just listen to this though, because the last part is love's response to life and hard providence. We, we have to respond to our own sin in reacting to things that are not necessarily sinful. We have to also deal with how we respond to other people sinning against us, but we also have to deal with things that are just hard in life. Difficult providences. He says, love rejoices in the truth. It basically cheers that there is truth and there is reality. This is not finding an obscure article to support conspiracies and saying, well, okay, well, that's true. Or it doesn't focus, it, it focuses more on biblical truth, particularly gospel truth. And that's why we have to push through. I don't mean ignoring and certainly don't mean being gullible, but it does mean we have to focus on what is eternal. Because again, where he's going with this is love is all that's going to remain. He says it bears all things. That means that there's a protection. Love actually causes a protection. It guards. It can help us when other things are going on. If we are loving well one another, we can endure things that we just did not see coming. It believes all things. It means, that means it commits to trust. And that's why it's a little different from the hopes all things because the hopes all things means it expects to trust. Believes all things does not mean that we are gullible, but it does mean that our first inclination is not to be suspicious or cynical. Christian love, especially of one another in the church, is not first and foremost to be suspicious. I don't know. It's first actually, especially with one another, to say, you know, there may be some truth in that. You know what that looks like for grown-ups? It means you learn how to chew meat and spit out bones. What if someone comes to you with the wrong spirit, but what they're saying is not necessarily wrong? You don't dismiss it 100%. A grown-up, mature adult, and he goes on to say, as a child, when I was a child, I did that stuff. Now I'm an adult. To adult this thing well, we have to learn to chew meat and spit out bones because we want to be more loving. Not more right. 
Lastly, he says, endures all things. That's how he sums up that section before he heads into the very final portion. It just endures all things. There's an endurance to it. This thing gets stretched out. And how does that happen? I mean, for any of you that have ever trained for something or even studied for something significant, you know that you can't cram for a marathon. And if you've ever really gone into any kind of higher level of studies, you can't cram to, uh, you know, get a master's or a doctorate. And that's not to say everyone should. You can't study to be a lineman and try to cram everything in at the last minute having not paid any attention. Because not only is it information that you're being stretched into and, and, and truth, so to speak, but it's also the amount of time that's given to it. There's the discipline. There's a physicality, a physicality to it. Our love is going to be tested a bit here and there, and we're going to have to learn to get better and better and better at it because in the end, it endures whatever. Whatever. And the last thing, when I say that there's a vitality to it, we must have it, or everything that we're about is pretty much useless. There's a practicality to it. We respond to our own fallenness. We respond to others' fallenness. And we respond also to just difficult providence. This eternality of love is pretty simple. He just simply wraps it up and says, but love never fails. It technically means it never folds under pressure. So this is far beyond sentimentality. This is far tougher than anybody, you know, because you're, you're willing to have a conversation with somebody that may not agree with you and even say, you know what, there's some truth to what you're saying. And then all of a sudden to have someone from the side saying, oh, you're becoming a snowflake. Now, who's the snowflake? The guy that can endure. I mean, who's the tough guy that breaks when they're being, you know, when they're being tortured for information? See, Christ endured everything. Christ, at any point in time, before he entered in public ministry for 40 days, of temptation at any time could have called on angels and just could have done away with Satan for good. But who's the snowflake? It's the guy who never breaks. It's the guy who never gives it up. Christ took every hit and never one time folded. Love endures all things. It never folds under pressure. And then he brings it back around to the gifts and he says, look, prophecies are going to cease. Why? Because we're not going to have to speak about something that isn't a reality because Christ will be. Faith, hope, and love, two of them will go away. You don't, because what is faith? Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the assurance of things, assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You see Christ, no more faith. You hope for his coming, he's come. Love sticks around. It will override who we are, what we'd say, how we say it in the heavenlies before his glory. It needs to mark us now. It is the most eternal thing, method, means that we possibly can embrace right now. It's to be loving. And, and what I've described is hard. It exposes some, some pretty good cracks in a lot of us. And if you want any insight on, on my preaching style or technique, the, the ones that I get most riled up about are the ones that have messed with me most during the week. So take that for whatever you will today. Guys, we saw all this in the incarnation. We see it at Christmas. Christ came 
and it was gritty, it was gutty, and it was all about love. It was all about deferring to others. The church is to put this on display with one another, fellow Christians first and foremost. But you know where it goes from there? It goes out to the world. It goes out to Milford. We, we start to figure out ways that we can love Milford, even in ways because they're not going to understand, at least lost people will not understand agape. They just won't. It's God's love. But we get to show it. But if we don't have it for one another, what are they seeing? I mean, increasingly what I'm afraid of is what they're seeing more is, um, I'm losing the word right now, when you, uh, you have groups in Washington, D.C. that, what is it? Lobbyists. I fear that sometimes they see the church as just a different lobbying group for a particular perspective. It should be a loving group that endures anything and still speaks truth, takes the hit, speaks it some more. Okay. God, I pray that you'd help us in this. Uh, help the church even now. They've had to endure more than love. They've endured an overly long sermon, and I'm so sorry for that part, but I'm not sorry for this text and, and the, the, necess- the necessity of it for us. So God, help us in that. I pray that you'd help us to uh, realize that there are great opportunities for us to show love for one another and the world along the way. That we, even, even, if, even not to complicate it, bottom line is when we are inconvenienced but it actually is a help to someone else, then we can know that that is a loving thing. But if we do it begrudgingly, if we do it um, always complaining about it, then we're losing the value of the sacrifice. So God, help us. Help us. Help us to be loving. Help us to speak in love. Help us to speak truth in love. So that other people may know the purpose of your coming. To rescue them from their condemnation. To know that they need to be forgiven of sin. Rescued from hell. And can have an eternal life of love with you. And while they are still here, of love with people that care for them very much, their circumstances may not change, but they should know love. Help us to be that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.